Welcome back to 24 Faithful. I'm Bradley Adams, joined this week by Joel Wood. How you doing, Joel? Never been better, Bradley. That's good. We once again went out Josh Rivers. He is on the second week of his vacation. Um, did we find out where he's gone? Well, actually, I have not found out where he's gone, but I know he is up in Colorado somewhere. Okay. Okay. So he's, he is he is somewhere. He played he played hooky again. Um, I have sent the the search team out there, and I thought I trapped him down, but he ditched his van. So either either he's been kidnapped or he's getting ready to set off a nuclear attack. <laughs> well, he put the podcast up last week for everyone's viewing or uh, listening pleasure, I should say, not viewing. Um, so he is still around, um, and he's back with us next week. But this week we're probably, here to talk he's about probably the, off of Mars somewhere. Yeah, maybe, maybe. This week we're here to talk about the last six episodes of season four. So where we got to last week was that uh, Moan had shot down Air Force One and taken some of the nuclear football in order to steal a nuclear warhead, which he can use against America. Uh, Keeler obviously is in critical condition and has been succeeded by his vice president, Charles Logan. And there's a race on at CTU to try and stop Marwan from detonating the nuclear warhead. So the first place I think we're going to start today is with Logan, because obviously Logan comes into this this season in a strange way, um, being that he is sworn in under the 25th Amendment with Keeler incapacitated, and we get an interesting perspective on him in his first hours in office, and obviously he does become a central character to season five and beyond. But the way that he is portrayed in these first seven, eight episodes that he is president is very, very different to how he ends up being. Yes. In season four, if you would have just left him in season four and not uh, had him in season five, he would probably be a uh, minor footnote on the history of 24. He's, he's portrayed, if, if you, if you want to draw comparisons, he's portrayed kind of the way they always, the way Mike Novick has said that uh, certain people in his cabinet viewed uh, David Palmer in season two as very indecisive, not willing to make that tough call. Um, he's, I guess, kind of like a deer in the headlights kind of look. You know, he's uh, he's overwhelmed because, you know, Keeler just got shot down. And uh, he kind of got whisked into the presidency without being really prepared. Um, and he's kind of showing his... Uh, lack of experience dealing with that kind of thing, which is why he uh, calls in a couple of favors in the first place. But you can tell early on that he's kind of kind of in a little bit over his head as compared to season five, where he appeared to be in, in over his head, when in reality, he knew what was going on the entire time. So I have a couple of questions on this. So the first one to me is, how did he ever get to be vice president? Because surely Keeler didn't choose him as his running mate. You know, we know that the election didn't basically exist because Palmer withdrew. And we knew from dialogue in season three that if he dropped out, then his party wouldn't replace him. Keeler would just win the election by default, essentially. So we know that it wasn't like people have are aware of Logan and sort of know that he is in this type of character, this this kind of meek, scared guy who... If, he, if something happened to Keeler, he wouldn't be able to handle the pressure of being president. It's not like people have voted for Keeler knowing that. So from that perspective, I get it. But I don't understand why Keeler's chosen him. Like, surely, surely from what we know of Keeler, he's smarter than this. So that's my first thing. My second thing is that I don't 
believe that this Logan is an evil mastermind. And you mentioned there that in season five, he seems to be in way over his head, but obviously he knows what's going on. I don't agree with that. I think, and we'll talk more about it in season five, but I think Logan at the start of season five actually feels like a president. He's not in David Palmer's ilk, obviously, but he actually feels in command. He feels decisive. He seems like he's in control. He seems like he's learned a lot from President Palmer's interventions here in these final six episodes in season four. And I believe that the Logan we see at the start of season five and throughout the first 15 episodes of season five is an evil mastermind. I don't believe that this Logan is an evil mastermind. And I don't know what happens in the intervening months of from now through to season five that changes that persona so drastically. Because you can, you look at the way that Logan handles this, the way that he handles um, the interrogation with uh, Joe Prado, the way he instantly goes to arrest Jack and it causes Marlon to escape, the fact that he calls in David Palmer and just sort of lets him get on with it. He sits in the background and at one point berates Palmer for the fact he's having meetings with mid-level staffers. Okay, but you've, you've chosen this. You, you're, you're fully aware of the fact that you are not capable of handling this crisis properly in this sort of desperate minute by minute, you've got to get everything right situation. And then you're complaining about it. And I just don't see how we get from A to B. Well, while, while you were, while you were talking, I was attempting to uh, look up Mr. Logan to see if, uh, to see if I could figure out exactly how this, uh, relationship between him and President Keeler became to be. Couldn't find anything. So my guess is is that he did what he does best, which as we learned in season five is uh, be a con man. He probably, um, you're right, he's probably not an evil mastermind, but at the same time, he's uh, he knows how to talk himself out of certain situations as we've come to see in season five and so on for other seasons. He's done a good job of convincing people, as we learned in, um, I think it was season six, season eight, that he's been able to convince people that he's a changed man, even though we know he's not. So I think uh, much of that probably had to do with him becoming Keeler's running mate. He was probably able to convince President Keeler that he was the right man for the job, even though he probably isn't. And the, pre- the, the way that President Logan ends up being, you know, reminds me of another president that will remain nameless. But the way, <laughs> the way that, that he goes about his machinations, which I probably butchered that word, but the way he goes about it, it's like he wants to help, but he wants to dictate the help. Like he wants Palmer to come in and take care of everything. He wants Palmer to basically make this go away. But he wants him to do it without making it seem like Logan doesn't know what he's doing or Logan doesn't have control of the office. And you can't have it both ways because as we've seen in previous seasons, President Palmer knows how to navigate his way through a crisis. He's gotten himself out of some pretty tricky situations in the previous three seasons. So if there's one person that you can call that would know how to handle this particular situation, it's David Palmer. 
but at the same time, you can't put handcuffs on it. He's Logan is not in the same world as David Palmer and Jack Bauer. He's not built the same way as far as wanting to go through extreme methods to get what he wants, at least not in season four. He's not, he's not the type that wants to uh, circumvent authority. He's afraid of the political fallout. He's afraid of the global fallout. He doesn't want to make China upset. He doesn't want to make this person upset. He doesn't want to make that person upset. But when you're the president, that kind of stuff happens. I don't think he's prepared for that because he wants to, he doesn't want to make anybody upset, but yet he wants David Palmer to basically make this go away. And those two things are not going to stay parallel to each other. Eventually they're going to collide. And I really don't think he was prepared for that. No, and I'm a little bit torn on the introduction of, of Palmer here because obviously Dennis Haysbert is wonderful and I love David Palmer's character and we know that these are the last six episodes we have with him before he gets killed off but re-watching it I feel like aside from the element of I'd had enough of Logan's whining and pettiness and his indecision after two hours that was much more than enough for me very thank you very much getting Palmer in to solve that is good but I don't think the show actually benefits from having Palmer in. I feel like we talked before about how season four kind of feels like a mini reset. And Mm -hmm. as the season's gone on, we've ended up circling back to more season one through three stuff. We've had Tony and Michelle come back. We've had, I mean, Chloe disappeared at CTU. She got fired by Aaron Driscoll and then she's come back. And then we've got Mm -hmm. President Palmer back, Mike Novick's back, sort of in the middle ground of past and future, obviously David having shunned him. But it kind of, it felt like we were past all of the season one through three stuff and it would kind of drip feed in. And now it feels like we're back in that sort of dynamic. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in terms of content. I just feel like I don't think it works. I I, I don't know whether it, it seems, it seems possible to me that they maybe ran out of ideas a little bit in this season. And we've ended up here as bringing back David Palmer because it solved issues and everyone likes Dennis Haysbert and everyone likes David Palmer. I, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't doesn't feel quite right to me. Well, it's like I've said multiple times on this podcast. Sometimes they give stuff to actors just to kind of justify them being on the show. And I, obviously he's not going to be president this season. So I guess they tried to figure out a way to incorporate him into the show without him obviously being the president. And this is one of the things that has kind of been a crutch, so to speak. Uh, We saw it a lot with Kim Bauer, uh, where they give people certain storylines just to have them on the show, uh, just to give them something to do. Um, The one positive, I guess you could say, is that the storyline that they gave uh, Dennis Haysbert ties into the overall storyline of the show. Whereas, you know, with Kim Bauer, they just gave her stuff just to have her something to do. And it's um, Dennis Haysbert. Dennis Haysbert makes everything look good. He's, we're, you know, we're, we, as, as Don Ashton does say to Mike, it's good to know that the president is in good hands. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's got the presidential part down. Like, he's, when he speaks, like, just the, the, the sound of his voice, just, it commands respect especially when he gets angry and his voice kind of elevates a little bit. 
it just it commands you to be quiet and listen. And I think they they kind of needed that to counteract Logan because Logan did not have that voice. Logan did not have did not command that kind of respect. You know, he, Logan is asking everybody else what he should do instead of just making the decision for himself. He needed somebody there that was going to make those decisions, um, which is what President Palmer would do. But at the same time, it also tied into the overall storyline arc of season five because you wanted to, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm sure you could have explained it in season five, but I think it would have been better if you would have had them meet in season four to kind of establish that, that tenuous relationship, that um, jealousy, so to speak, that Logan has for Palmer, um, the tension to kind of set up for Palmer getting assassinated in season five because you've established that tenuous relationship between Palmer and Logan to kind of set up for, you know, Logan knowing what happened to David Palmer in season five because Logan didn't seem to, and this is another thing I'm talking about with his, his con man attitude because you can tell that he wasn't upset when Palmer got, when Palmer got assassinated. But at the same time, he made you believe that he was upset. And that's why the Logan that I see in season four is so confusing to me because it's almost a complete 180 from the one we see in season five. Um, now, maybe, they, maybe the story that they want to tell is that he's had a chance to get a grasp on his presidency. So maybe he's a little bit more confident in himself, I guess you could say. Um, but you needed, the way they portrayed Logan, if they didn't bring Palmer in in season four, they would have had to change Logan because the Logan that we saw in season four was not equipped um, to make those decisions. He was not going to make those tough decisions to get them out of that crisis. Um, so if they would have left um, Dennis Haysbert out of season four, they would have had to alter the, the Logan character because the way that he was presented in season four was more of a hindrance to the operation than he was a benefit or, or um, an influence. I'm sure we'll talk more about Charles Logan moving forward as he becomes a more central character. Um, but we'll move on. Mention Chloe Briefly on Chloe, um, she gets one of her finest moments in this stretch of episode in that she works with computers. Mm -hmm. I like it. I mean, this is how can you not well, like it? It's amazing. <laughs> like other okay. other than other than live another day, uh, taking that out of the equation for a second. How many times do we actually get this side of Chloe? Three times, I would say. She does. She does a bit in season seven when she tries to duke the FBI, and then she threatens that guy in CTU in season eight. That's about it. Yeah. So this is this is a welcome sight for Chloe and Mary. And Mary Lynn, if you if you watch Mary Lynn in all of her uh, acting roles, if you see her on Twitter, um, Chloe is not that big of a stretch from the person that she actually is. She's, <laughs> a, she's a comedian, and this is why <laughs> Chloe's comedy stuff works so well because Mary Lynn actually this is her trade. So yeah. the fact you know we could talk we'll talk about the the computer scene, but obviously Chloe's highlights are often 
the one-liners and the funny moments with Jack and with Edgar and whatever. This is just a kind of nice sidestep of Chloe's in an important situation. She's doing an important thing. And also, I think I mentioned last week about Edgar and his sort of out-of-character stuff. I really hate that since when Chloe comes back, when Michelle brings her back, they spend five episodes feuding over rank and you do this, no, no, you have to do this because I'm in charge, blah, blah, blah. All of this nonsense. And then you get to the final section of that episode and Chloe's on her way to the house and Edgar has that nice line of, I asked Buchanan if I can go instead of you and he wouldn't let me. He said that you're the best analyst we have. He's right. And that's, that is one of my favourite season four quotes because it's just, I don't know why we've spent five episodes being tense with them when this friendship, this sort of encouraging each other, supporting each other is so much nicer. The, uh, the Chloe and Edgar dynamic um, throughout season five and season six other than other than the the Chloe dynamic with Jack, obviously, um, the Chloe dynamic with Edgar is probably my favorite one-two combination um, of the series. At least, at least, at least of the people that she's interacted with, um, because they just they they're kind of the same kind of person, but on different ends of the spectrum. They're both kind of quirky. They're both socially awkward. Um, they both have extremely huge egos um and they're both i guess do a similar job but at the same time they're both good at their job and normally that would lead to pretty uh pretty stressful relationships but you can tell that they care for each other on kind of a brother sister level but at the same time their awkwardness (laughs) doesn't allow them to display that or express that a lot and we'll get a better glimpse of it in um season did i say season six i meant season five i think you um, say season six which would be very difficult yeah yeah I, I met season five okay but the relationship between them is kind of this weird brother sister where i hate you but i don't want <laughs> i don't want anything to happen to you kind of relationship and it's kind of it's it's cool to see it's just the kind of thing that you don't want to you don't want to see them at odds with each other because their dynamic is so great they're often passive aggressive and sometimes even aggressive aggressive each, each other um again it's why i love that that edgar quote of reassuring chloe and saying that she's the best analyst and you know the the chloe scene where she has to get the the rifle out the back of the car and, and shoot the guy that's come to kill them just so good it comes it comes not out of nowhere because we know that marwan's man wants to take out nabil uh, nabila uh, the girlfriend so we know that that sort of thing's coming but it's just it's really sudden and happens very very quickly and it's an it's a nice illustration of chloe it's nice to see her get out from out the desk i, I wouldn't want to see it regularly i wouldn't want to see her in danger that that regularly but mm-hmm. the one time that she does go on location out in the field and she handles herself very well which is lovely to see when you look at Chloe, like before, like we know what happens after season four, but prior to season four, like in season three, you wouldn't have thought that this was who Chloe was. You wouldn't have thought that Chloe had this kind of, and even and even in a, a chunk of episodes in season four before she got fired, you would have never thought that this was who Chloe could be. But then you sent her out in the field and it's like, well, she can handle herself. But at the same time, you saw how doing that affected her, so to speak. So then you start to then you start to realize that okay, 
maybe we shouldn't send her out in the field. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things where, and Mary Lynn's so good in this stretch of episodes. This stretch of episodes for Chloe is probably my favorite stretch of episodes because she's given so much to do. And, you know, a lot of times she's usually there for those quirky one-liners that you talk about. And, you know, giving Jack schematics and circumventing authority to help Jack. But she's never, she was never really given a meaty assignment to kind of take care of. And I thought this was the perfect way to kind of give her something that shows the viewer that she is more than just an analyst, that she can take care of herself. And she's more than this socially awkward, you know, quirky analyst who basically is the best at her job, but she can also take care of herself. And I love Edgar, love him to death. Louis Lombardi is a great actor. Not sure I would have bought him in the same scene. That's just, <laughs> it's just my opinion. But I, but I do, I do love the little moment where he kind of humbles himself when he admits that Chloe is the be- is the best analyst for the job. And I thought that that was kind of because up until that point we haven't really we haven't really seen Edgar humble himself too much. I mean, even though he was socially awkward, he's got a pretty high opinion of himself. <laughs> so it was nice to see that that little moment of him actually coming around to kind of establishing that relationship further. Indeed. So the big thing that happens in this stretch of episodes is, of course, the end of 2 to 3 a.m. And Jack makes a very big decision. And that decision lets Paul Reigns die. The funny thing, I say the funny thing, it's not funny at all. <laughs> but the, the, the sort of the fitting thing um, about this episode is it's the first time Jack sees Paul since the shooting. He goes in around 2.10 and says about how he saved his life. And he'll check it back on him later. And then... Paul's last words to Audrey are that he's going to get through this. And then 20 minutes later, Jack lets him die. And how did Audrey take that? Badly. (laughs) You kind of, I mean, Jack and Audrey's relationship takes a turn for the worse very quickly throughout this day, doesn't it? I think Audrey would have been fine if uh, she had never sent Jack to CTU that day (laughs) Um, to handle those negotiations. But you kind of got the sense, especially when Paul was going with Jack to McLennan Forrester and Audrey and, and Secretary Heller were sitting in that little conference room and having that conversation. And Heller starts to notice that, you know, maybe Audrey's having second thoughts. Maybe she still has feelings for Paul. Maybe, you know, Jack isn't who she thought he was. Different things like that. And even though she wouldn't readily admit it, you could tell that her feelings for Paul were still there, um, which is why she told Jack to take care of Paul. It all goes it all goes back to that phone call as they were handing McLennan Forrester, where Jack gave Audrey his word that he would make sure Paul was safe. So not only did you not keep that word by letting him get shot, but then you were basically the reason that he died. Not, <laughs> even not, not though basically directly. <laughs> even though he saved your life you still made the call to allow him to die probably not the finest moment in the history of jack bauer no it's got to be one of the worst i think somehow worse <laughs> than ryan Chappelle, maybe i'm not sure well kind of but then again with ryan he actually pulled the trigger so i 
I'll put Ryan like a notch above Paul for that reason. <laughs> okay. But it's basically the same thing because he's he's directly responsible for his death. Like you could probably make a reasonable case that Paul would have survived had Jack not intervened when he did. I mean, yeah, it, it was sort of looking 50-50, wasn't it? Dr. Besson was uh, kind of not optimistic or pessimistic. Um, let's, get, let's get the nonsense bits out of the way first before I actually talk about this scene, because it is, a, it is quite nonsense. There's one operating theatre, there's one doctor. It's the middle of the night, okay, yes, fine. It's CTU, okay, yes, fine. But if a CTU field agent got shot on an operation at this time and pulled in surgery, then what? Presumably they, they, they bring the agent back to CTU rather than taking him to a hospital. Then what happens? What happens to the agent in this scenario? Because I, I don't think there was room in the budget. <laughs> What's the production budget or CTU's budget? Either or. Okay. Um, yeah. But my question is, is that where did all of the doctors go that were tending to Maya? Like, That's a good wasn't point. There, wasn't there like three or four doctors tending to Maya? When, they went when home. Was, well, see, that's the they, problem. They, they, went they home. finished for the day. <laughs> okay. That's the problem. When, when you're in a crisis like this, okay. Now, I've seen hospitals, you know, especially during this whole pandemic thing that we have going on. There are nurses that are working around the clock. This is my point. This is my <laughs> like, Look, CTU is not a hospital. Fine. But it's a government military building with field agents with potential witnesses and leads and key people getting injured and needing medical attention. I mean, there's doctors treating Joe Prado. Were they the, they weren't the same doctors that treated Paul Reigns, were they? They were different. They were different. It, it just say, this is the nonsense bit. This is the logical thing you have to overcome. And it, it really does frustrate me because it's a, if you put all that aside, it is an absolutely wonderful scene of tension. I know I say it a lot, but the music is just perfect throughout and you've, you've, you've got that sense of, of horror in the character of Jack is doing his job. He's desperate to save Lee Young because he knows that if he doesn't, then millions of people will die. That is true. But you also get the emotion of, of Jack's, uh, his steadfastness towards his mission, but also his fear. You can see it drop where he thought he realizes that Paul might die and he doesn't want to cause this. A, because it's Audrey's husband. B, because Paul saved his life. And I guess most importantly, he's a human being and Jack wants to save other people. He doesn't want people to die. That's kind of his job. You see the emotion in Audrey. You see it a little bit in Curtis. You even get it from Dr. Besson in his desperation of please don't make me choose between the two patients sort of thing. Um, again, him being a doctor, he wants to save everyone that comes across his table. It's, it's just, it's magnificent. It's so, so good once you get past the logical steps. Yeah, I, I love the scene itself, but it's like if, if all of these field agents and analysts and directors and all these people have to work 24 hours straight, to make sure that they avert this crisis. Why wouldn't the doctors be under the same protocols? I, I said we've put the logical bits aside now, Joel. <laughs> we, we, we've gone through that. I, I just... It's you some, are right. It has to be said. It has to be said of why that would happen. That being said, I do love to see. And Audrey and, and Jack, the tension in that scene, which I think the actress's name is uh, Kim Raver. Is that it? Kim Raver. Kim Raver and Kiefer Sutherland played that part brilliantly. Just the the hurt in her eyes, the anguish, the fact that Jack knew that it was something that he had to do 
but he knew how much it was going to crush Audrey. And it's amazing because in any, in any other realistic relationship, there probably will be no going back from this. <laughs> I mean, realistically. Yeah, but this is 24 we're talking about. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. I mean, they kind of pushed it aside for the sake of the, of the mission, but it's the whole scene was played perfectly from the doctor to even Paul laying there on the operating table. Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it would. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd list it under James Rain's finest work. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, some sometimes, you know, it takes a lot of work to just lay still on that operating table like that. So I think, I think the whole scene was played as close to perfect as you could possibly be. But at the same time, once you look past the deficiencies of the, the little things, like the lack of a doctor, the lack of medical support. Um, if you look past that, it was uh, probably one of my favorite scenes of the season, just because of the emotion, the the music, the build up, the the way Jack looked conflicted as it was happening to the utter absolute horror on Audrey's face when when she knew what was happening. Um, the line, you know, he he saved your life, you know. <laughs> It was just, it was, it was so good, and it was definitely one of my favorite scenes, other than the rescue scene where Jack saved Secretary Heller and Audrey from where they were being kidnapped. Other than that scene, it's probably my favorite scene of the series. I mean, series, of the season. Yeah, it is, it is brutal, it's haunting, it's horrifying, it's, it's so good all at the same time. And we go from there, Leon survives, they get the location on Marwan, and Marwan Lee, capturing Marwan leads them to back to Richard Heller, which leads them on to a familiar foe, Mandy, who returns after last appearance at the end of season two, um, attempting to assassinate President Palmer, uncredited here as she was back then to keep her reveal a surprise. Um, and then we get a whole long episode of Tony having been taken hostage by Mandy and the requirement for Jack to go and... Well, I was going to say save Tony, but the priority is capturing the hostile, as they refer to her as. I was watching the season. If you're not watching the season previously, if you had not watched the, the season before, it's something that would kind of take you by surprise. Mandy's kind of like an insect, okay? Just when just when you think she's gone or just when you think you've gotten rid of her, you know, she just comes bouncing back. And it's, it's her sporadic use is kind of like, well, we need a villain to tie in here. Nina's dead. So let's bring in Mandy. It's so, a shame because Mia Kirshner is so criminally underused. She's so good. And she's in, what, nine episodes in the series? And three of them are here? Yeah. She feels like a massive waste. I think she could have warranted at least a half a season. Maybe an at one villain or something like that. Or an at, uh, at two villain. I think she could have warranted that. I think she was kind of like that utility player kind of villain where they bring in just when they need somebody. But I thought the, the scene with Tony was like the whole build-up to it. And Michelle Dessler, Tony, Mandy, Bill, Jack, that whole little group right there played this perfectly because they kidnapped Tony. And it's, it's also good storyline continuity um, when you think about it because long-time 24 fans will remember um, that it was Tony who put the needs of Michelle ahead of the needs of the country, which kind of led to this whole 
you know, anti-social Tony Almeida that we saw in the, in the beginning of his appearances in season four. Um, he basically put the life and, and welfare of his wife ahead of what was going on in the country, which you can sympathize with him, you know, from the married side of things. Um, if I was in his position, I probably would have done the same thing. So I understand. I understand why he did it. Mandy, on the other hand, wanted to see if uh, Michelle shared uh, a similar love and affection for Tony. So she calls up Michelle, masterful scene, and she wants Michelle, it's basically a, a, a reenactment of Stephen Saunders, where she wants Michelle to take men off of us, off of one section of the building and move them to another section so she can escape from that section, which... I thought, it was, I thought it was too similar to Steven's request, but at the same time, you had to make it that way to kind of draw the parallels to what happened in season three. To kind of draw, draw the parallels. The- I think you can draw the parallels no matter what. It's just what other <coughs> requests she, can she make? Like, she's not going to, you know, she can't get a presidential pardon out of her. She can't, that's not going to happen. Her best route is she to just... Tried. Well, you no, know, no, but she, <laughs> when she gets captured, she does, and she gets one. Fine. But when she's taken her Tony hostage and they're all coming after her still, escaping is her only route. You know, it, it's like Jack says when he is trying to establish whether she was in the car explosion. It's just that her next move was to bargain for her, her escape or, or whatever. But, it, you know, it's not to kill herself. It's not to do whatever else. She's, she's a professional and she knows what she's doing. So, yeah, it is, it is very similar, but it's by design. We had that whole scene back at the end of season three with Brad Hammond and Michelle and where he put it to her as to if you would make the same decision then resign now and she doesn't resign evidently so we've already got it sort of uh, rooted in 24 history that michelle would not do the same she says to bill that she almost did she almost went through with it but she doesn't and they try and trap her and yeah you know in general in general i'm not keen on fake out deaths in general but I think this one works. You're shaking your head and we'll come to you. I think this one works for a couple of re- Well, I say for a couple of reasons. It's the fact that it's a very short time that we think he's dead or we think that Tony and Mandy are dead. It's 11 minutes inside the show and it's seven real life minutes for us that we think they're dead. There's never a, you know, it's, all, it, it's, it's completely obscure that it would be them. It's two, two people walking to a car. And we've also had evidence, you don't realize it at the time, but there's also plenty of evidence there behind it to make you realize that, no, it's not Matt and Tony there, even in the moment. The fact that she goes to the neighbor's house and kills Jaws, the, the big guy, and then keeps alive the two people that look similar in build to herself and to Tony. And then we don't see them again. We don't see them. We don't see Mandy. We don't see Tony again from that point up until the phone conversation with Michelle when we see the two neighbors walking out to the car. So... Yeah, look, I say fake out deaths in general, not a massive fan, but I think this one works for me. I don't think there was anybody in the entire history of 24 that had more fake out deaths than Tony Almeida. This is I mean, his second? Are we, are we counting his, near, his shooting as a fake out death? I don't think that's a fake out death. He just got shot and he was near death. Well, it's, 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 it's okay, let me rephrase that then. <laughs> uh, I don't think there was anybody in the history of 24 with as many near-death experiences as, to- as Tony Almeida. 
You were to be fair, you were right on the fake outs because this is this is if we're going to say that this is the first, it's not the last. It's it's not. And the thing about it is with with this one is it's all in the little the little things. Like when when he called Michelle and you thought for a second that Michelle was actually going to do it. And then as Bill was was leaving, she was like, I can't do this. So she tells she tells Bill what happened and they put on this elaborate operation. And then you saw Manny go next door and shoot this guy, but keep the other two alive. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, that was random. <laughs> if you haven't seen the season yet, you would think that that was pretty random. But then when you see, you know, after Jazz got his men in position, when you see them walk into the car and you see the umbrella and a scene like that, if it was playing out the way that it was indicated in the show, you'd think you would see Mandy and Tony walking to the car, like physically see them, face-to-face kind of thing. And then it's a situation where you got to kind of pick up on it immediately because, I mean, she's she's got the umbrella over her head. She's trying to make sure that Tony's not under the umbrella, that Tony's under the umbrella. But she's also got the phone to her ear, giving Michelle instructions. And then... Now, mind you, mind you now, she's still talking to Michelle as they open the car door. Which hand did she open the car door with? Because she's got the umbrella in one hand. She's got the phone in the other. Which hand did she open the car door with? I think the guy has the umbrella in his hand. I, I, thought, I thought she had the umbrella because I thought the guy had his, had his, like, his head down. There's, de- there's definitely a shot in the, when she's getting into the car, the woman, of her holding the phone. You can definitely see that she's holding the phone. So I think, I think it is the, the guy that's holding the umbrella. But either way. So they get in the car. And then all of a sudden, you know, Bill jumps the gun, starts to send his men in. Uh, big mistake, Bill. Love you, James. But uh, big mistake, Bill. Let Jack um, run these things. <laughs> you know, that's why, that's why Jack's the field agent. <laughs> um, Jack tries to get him to stop. Of course, they don't. Not in time, anyway. Um, and then she's like, I see... I see I see your men. You lied to me. You, you get the rest. So then she says, "You're not going to take me alive." And as soon as that last word comes out, boom, car explodes. So it's kind of, if like I said, if you hadn't seen the season before, you're kind of sitting there thinking, "That's it. <laughs> like that's 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 the buildup for that. They're just gonna kill themselves just like that. And we're back to square one. We got like I don't know two episodes left. One episode. So." <laughs> So you're you're thinking to yourself, there's got to be something more to it. There's got to be more to it. Um, and this is this is another pretty good scene um, where you know Bill's gotten orders from the White House to redeploy and come back to CTE, but Jack is continuing to listen to the phone call, even though Bill has told him to come back to CTE. Curtis basically said, "Jack, Tony's gone. You know, <laughs> Tony's Tony's dead. He's gone. He's not coming back." But Jack wants to keep listening to the phone call. And this is one of the few times in 24, if I remember correctly, I think it's probably the, the first time since, if I remember correctly, the first time since he was on that plane with Nina, when Nina tried to uh, melt down CTU with that virus, and they found the virus. And then Jack sits beside her and said, and she says, I don't believe you. And Jack gave this little sly smirk and said, I don't care what you believe. So then in season four, when he's listening to the phone call and he notices that, you know, it's pouring down rain outside, bouncing off the car, but you can't hear it on her end of the phone. 
And then you see that little smirk from Jack, like, okay, I got you. That's, it's always, it's always great when you see Jack smile or smirk because it happens very, very few and far between throughout the series. But when it happens, it means a lot. It's meaningful. It means he's got you where he wants you or he's got what he wants. Um, so he realizes that Tony and Mandy are still in the building because, as you said, not enough time has really passed to allow them to, you know, get completely out of the building. And then you see Mandy kind of telling Tony to, to get up, gives him a set of clothes to put on. And then you notice a little, you notice something else that watching the season for the first time you might have missed, but watching it back, you definitely would have picked up where Tony's standing there and he's getting ready to walk out. And he he sees the uh, the broken lamp, I'm guessing that is. And he kind of smashes his, his foot on it to kind of draw blood, knowing that, you know, Jack was smart enough to pick up on the blood trail. So it's another little small little thing that you might not have picked up on at first that is just – that makes the scene even that much better because he knows they're going out to the parking lot or to the garage and – he wants to he wants Jack to know, but obviously he can't tell Jack. So he's gonna basically make his own foot bleed so he can so he can get Jack to where Jack needs to be. And I thought that whole that whole scene right there, including the including the conversation between Michelle and Bill when Michelle thought Tony was dead. That whole I'll say the whole last ten to fifteen minutes of that ep- of episode twenty three, um, was just masterful when you uh when you put it all together in the contents, it was just a masterful last, I'll say 15 or 20 minutes. So originally there was a plan to have Michelle kill herself after Tony's death. Um, very sort of Romeo and Juliet and Rico Islesworth didn't like it. So they changed it. And Probably good I'm quite, idea. Yeah, I'm quite glad they did because that would have been horrendous. And what we got instead, the, the phone call from Tony and Michelle at the end of that episode, uh, Michelle in her car, just sort of looking lost for what to do, sort of uh, very Erin Driscoll from... 10 hours before of you know all is lost essentially uh that phone call and then the scene that they have the reunion scene in the finale as well just so heartwarming so lovely and after so many hours of tension and feuding to an extent and then sort of starting to progress towards they're going to rediscover their love for each other and get back together aren't they we end up with this and it, it's just wonderful. It is just lovely. Yes. It's, it's, it's another step in that relationship. And, um, I thought Carlos and Rico was just, uh, they played it so well. And I've seen, and I've seen her in, in several different roles since then. But to this day, every time I see her, I think of Michelle Dessler, no matter what she's in, I still think of Michelle Dessler every time I see her. Just like every time I see Carlos, I think of Tony Almeida. Even though he has that same raspy, quiet voice in pretty much every role he's in, but I still always think of Tony Almeida. And I just thought that they, from the phone call to the reunion scene, it was perfect pairing these two up. Because you can kind of, even before you realize that Nina was a traitorous killer, I never really bought into the the concept of a Nina Tony relationship. It just never really meshed with me. But Michelle and Tony kind of 
meshed well to me from the jump. And I'm glad that they decided to stay that route as opposed to going with the story that Michelle left him because he couldn't find a job. Just as we sort of come towards the end of the season and the last few minutes of the podcast, we've got one last thing to talk about this week, and that's, um, well, the, the ending of the season, I guess. Uh, Jack having to fake his own death to avoid being killed by Agent Dale Spaulding on the advice of uh, Logan's advisor, Walt Cummings, because he's about to be turned over to the Chinese, who supposedly are going to break him for raiding their consulate. We didn't talk about that a lot this week, but we'll talk about that next week. Um but yeah, you know, this this is it, it's a strange one because of all the seasons, apart from perhaps season eight, and I'm talking original, I'm going to exclude Live Another Day for a minute, but of the first eight seasons, this is the most ending-y ending, if that makes sense, of all the seasons. I think even more so than season eight because you look, you know, it, it's that got that perfect feel to it. There are, I don't think there are many loose ends, to be fair. So you've got Tony and Michelle have, re- have reunited and they're going to be back together. You've got Audrey, who's had the worst day of her life, but it's kind of just come to an end. It doesn't feel like there's any lingering issues there. You've got Logan in charge. You've got David Palmer on his way out of the White House for the last time because Logan's pushed it out. So we know that that's kind of come to an end. All of the CTU stuff from seasons one to three has ended. So we're into this new set of characters. Chloe's okay. Edgar's okay. Bill's okay running it. It just feels like, in terms of story and ending, and then you have that that absolutely gorgeous shot of Jack walking out into the sunset, and it it just feels like the end in a way. If they um, if they had decided to end the series after season four, this would have been about as perfect of an ending as you could get. Even though you would still have the loose end of you know Logan and Office, and you know what would happen to him. You kind of don't care. But as far as loose ends, you know, Tony and Michelle are together. Bill's the perfect guy to run CTU. Chloe and Edgar are on the same page again. David Palmer's kind of riding off into his own sunset, so to speak. And the scene where they faked his death, where, you know, the shootout and the, you know, the epinephrine and bringing him back to life, and that whole scene was just so good. And they made you believe that Jack might be dead. <laughs> so it's, and to have him fake his death, I mean, you, you see that in, in TV shows now, you know, where they're going to end the, they're going to end the series, um, but they don't want to kill off the main character. So let's just fake his death. Um, so I thought that, you know, if they had decided to end the series, I think other than, you know, season eight, obviously, I think this was as about as good of an, a way to write off the show as you could get because everything was pretty much tied up to this point. Jack was going off and starting a new life. So, um, you know, had they decided to end it after season four, I don't think there was any any better way that they could have ended it. No. I mean, we'd have lost season five, which is masterful, and we'll talk about that in two weeks' time. But um, it would have been quite nice. I mean, it's it's chaotic, and I don't quite get the logic or the timeline of him actually faking his death from the phone call to Palmer to sort of establishing what's going to happen, how he gets shot, how he gets revived. It feels like a lot of moving parts that don't really make sense to me. But again, it, it, in the moment, you can kind of say with Paul's death, when you step back and think about it, it doesn't quite make sense. But when you're actually sat there enjoying it, taking it all in, it, it is great. And like you say, it's it, it's just a really, really good scene. Uh, and, and part of the, the fact that it is a great ending is we have that superb line from David to Jack of... Jack, you do understand that when you hang up 
for all intents and purposes, Jack Bauer is dead. And that feels like a, a way of bookending the series, if, they, if, if this is where it ended. I don't think there was ever any suggestion that it would. Um, sort of ratings phenomenon, massive hit for Fox. But in, in terms of story, this, this would have been a, a fairly natural closing point. And that's a fairly perfect line for, to sum it up. That we, and, and even even in the sense of we're going to have four more seasons, or four and a half more seasons, if we call it another half season, that Jack Bauer of seasons one to four is gone. And, and season five, although it's not a new show, as we'll talk about in two weeks' time, we get rid of quite a few characters from the earlier seasons. And so you've got the... You do obviously have the, the carryover of the CTU personnel from this year, Jack, Chloe, Edgar, Bill, and President Logan and everything like that. But it kind of, you move into a new dimension. You, start, you don't start again like season four started again, but it does feel a little bit, when we do get to season five, like some of the season four and before stuff does get pushed aside and we're going to continue on. So it's a new Jack Bauer that we're going to find next season because Jack Bauer is dead. Yeah, I think, I think they meant season five as sort of a a reset you know it's kind of you know 24 is kind of split up into two parts so to speak you know not counting live another day obviously but it's kind of you got season one through four then you got season five through eight and i think season five was meant to be kind of a reset as you will get into later about the you know extreme um decimating of characters um so i think season season five was meant to be uh kind of a reset of sorts and you know kind of start off in a new direction um you got a new president you got uh new ctu members which they have new members every season um so yeah i think and it's probably why season five is one of my favorite seasons of any tv show um so i think that was meant to be a good reset there but that is the end of season four uh i say that's the end of season four there are some things we didn't talk about namely the uh the raid on the Chinese consulate that we didn't quite have time for. Um, but we will talk about that next week for definite because there's a lot of impact that that has over not only this season, but season five, season six, season eight, live another day. Uh, yeah, it, it, it carries over a lot. So we'll talk about that next week, definitely along with a couple of other general season four bits before we move on to the great, great season five. Um, but that is it for season four's episode run uh, for this week. Uh, my thanks to Joel for joining us. We've got, josh back next week to moderate things um in the meantime if you want to get in contact you can go to 24faithful.com all the links to get in touch with us via twitter or email and even leave a voicemail that's available for you on there Uh, but thanks very much for listening and we'll join you again next week